Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Good evening. Oh, that was weak. Week, week, week. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, and we're going to spend our time there this evening. The book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1. I figured if I could start a year long series on Sunday morning, hit or miss over the year, on Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, well, then it would be good for us to go through the rest of the book of Acts on Sunday evening. So I want to spend a sermon here or there hitting a chapter of the book of Acts. This is not, I've, I don't believe I have ever preached through the book of Acts in 18 years of preaching, somewhere around there. Uh, I have done Bible classes on the book of Acts, but I've never preached through it. And I thought this might be uh, interesting for me and uh, tolerable for you guys. And hopefully we can get through the book of Acts and learn some things that would be helpful to us as we try to devote ourselves more fully to what we're supposed to be as Christians. So I want to talk about the incredible story that we find in the book of Acts, and to do that we need to open up with Acts chapter 1. So hopefully you are there by this point. Uh, what you find in the book of Acts is that it really is the second part of a two-part story, and I think everybody in here probably knows that. Hold your place there in Acts, and I want to read for you the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, which is part one of this story. The Gospel of Luke, starting in verse one. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It seemed also good to me, since I have carefully invested every, investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. That's the beginning of Luke. When you get over to the book of Acts, it reads, in the f I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had, been, had given instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, and he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appeared to them over a period of 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. What you have here is part one and part two of a story. And we know that because, first of all, he refers to the first account over in Acts, and he also addresses both of them to Theophilus. And so Luke goes about the task of putting together a chronological account, which is the kind of stories we like, put together an orderly chronological account of the life of Jesus and the beginning of the church. And he doesn't do it as an eyewitness, which is part of what makes the story interesting, at least the gospel side of the story. Matthew, he's an eyewitness. John, he's an eyewitness. Luke... Not an eyewitness. 
His story is based off of eyewitness account, but it is more the story of a biographer, one and takes information that's been written down, and he takes some of probably some of the other gospel accounts that already existed by the time he's writing his down, but he does it more as a historian and researcher, not as someone who saw these things for himself. Now, we do know he saw bits and pieces of the story of Acts, but we don't know that he saw any of the gospel. We're never told that he was there present as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, Luke is just a historian writing down what the eyewitnesses have said. And so he himself is an eyewitness, an eyewitness of the church, but not of Jesus himself. Uh, And I personally believe that what he is doing is he is writing down a legal defense for Paul. This is my own personal take. There's nowhere in there that it says this, but you add together some of the information that's there. He writes to someone called Most Excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, some have tried to say, is a generic term meaning those who love God. Theo meaning God and uh, phileo, which means uh, brotherly love. And so it's those who are within the brotherly love of God or those who have that kind of love for God. But it was also a common name. And, and you take that designation most excellent, it seems that it's just as possible that Theophilus is a man of some authority, of some, uh, you know, Clout. He, he is a man that, that needs to know the story. And if you take the fact that the story ends where it does, at the, in the book of Acts, it ends with Paul in prison getting ready to make his defense before Caesar. It would make sense that there would be somebody who is gathering together a, a kind of a outsider's perspective of everything that's been going on and putting it all down in writing in an orderly manner so that it can be used as a explanation of the events that involve Paul. And so to do that, Luke has to write down the story of Jesus because that's really everything about what Paul has been doing and why he's been doing what he's doing and what he's preaching and teaching about. And then you tell the story of the book of Acts And notice one of the themes through the book of Acts is that the troublemakers are not the Christians. The troublemakers have been the Jews. Well, who are Paul's accusers? The Jews. And so it makes sense to me that that Luke, as a historian, as an educated man, as a Greek, is sitting down and writing out the story to give some background information as to who Paul is and what he has done and why he has done it. There's no way to prove that one way or the other, but it makes sense with the information that we have that that's what's going on. And so it really is a great part one, part two of a story that needed to be told, especially in defense of Paul. Historically, traditionally, Paul was set free the first time. 
So this defense that would have been written would have been written for Paul. It would have been enough information that was used in order for Paul to be set free, only to be arrested again several years later for similar accusation. And then at that point, Nero, who would have been the one hearing the case, uh, had gone a little bit stir-crazy, and at that point he condemned Paul to death. You also see a big difference in the way these two stories function, okay? Luke very much intends there to be a nice tied-up bow on the end of the book of Luke. Uh, And the way I I like to see this most clearly is the story of the ascension, okay? You turn it to the end of the book of Luke, and you've got this telling of the ascension of Jesus rising back up into the cloud. It says, he led them out as far as Bethany, And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. The end. And that ends beautifully, does it not? We've got this story of Jesus that begins with Jesus' birth and the foretelling of his birth and all the amazing events about his birth. And it goes on through his parables and his teachings and his miracles and, and the conflict that he had with the Jews that ended with him being crucified. But he raised again from the dead. And after a period of time, he raised up into the sky and the disciples were able to just continue on worshiping. Woo! What a great story. But look at the same story at the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And they immediately go back and they have to start solving issues. And that's what the rest of the book, Acts chapter 1, is about. Now, it's interesting how you've got the exact same story here. One, in the Gospel of Luke, kind of as the concluding remarks, everything is wonderful and good, everything worked out, yay! But you hear the exact same story in the book of Acts, and it's a story of unrest. You know, in Luke... They stare up in the sky and Jesus is gone and they immediately worship and then they go to the temple and they continually worship. Yay! In Acts, they keep staring into the sky until two angels appear and say, you people, move on. Like, the show's over. Go home. Or not really go home. The imply is, go to work. You've got work to do. And and that's really the comments that are made in the verse previous to this, right before Jesus went up into the sky. Look at verse 8. But you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You have work to do. See ya. I mean, that, that, that's Jesus' side of this. And then he goes, and he's gone, and they're just staring until two angels wake them up and tell them, get to work. There's work to be done. Now, both of these stories are accurate. I, I don't doubt that they worshipped Jesus, seeing what he had accomplished, seeing that he had ascended back to the Father, seeing the way he been exalted. I mean, Jesus went into the sky the same way I picture Enoch going to the sky, or the same way I picture Elijah disappearing into the sky. We don't read of fiery chariots here, but you read of a man ascending from earth to heaven. And that's a praiseworthy thing. But in one story, it's the of a bow, and in the other story, it's turning the first page. And so what you have Luke do here is use the same story for two different purposes to show one story has ended, the next story has just begun right where that story ended. It's the picking up story during the same scene. Have you ever seen that happen in movies? A movie ends, they don't know if they're going to funding for the next movie so they tie everything up and and it just it seems like it's over but then they get funding for the next movie and so the next movie picks up immediately where the first one picks off so they kind of they kind of have to review that last scene that last action scene that just happened and what we find is what we thought was tied up nice and neatly actually there's some cliffhangers left there's some things we didn't realize during the first movie that had happened, which now open up the need for a whole second story. Well, that's what Luke does here. He opens up the story of what happened after Jesus. And I think that's important because that's what we're going to read about. You'll find in Acts chapter 1 that pretty much, and really Acts chapter 2 and much of the book of Acts centers around something that we're a bit uncomfortable with. Hold your place there in Acts chapter 1. We're going to come back to it, but turn with me back to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John chapter 14. John 14. I want to read several passages here from Jesus' conversation with the disciples in the upper room before he heads off to the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 14, I want to start reading in verse 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. you skip to chapter 15, verse 26. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. 
you will also testify because you've been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, starting in verse 7. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It, it is for your benefit that I go away, because I, if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. One of the really important pieces of the incredible story of the book of Acts is the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of those topics that I, I find we in the church have spent far too little time talking about. We spend far too little time talking about what God's role is in the spread of the church outside of, well, he gave us this book. But Jesus talks about more than that. And one of the things I want to focus on as we go through the book of Acts is to look at the role that the Holy Spirit played in the growth of the church and, correspondingly, the role that the Holy Spirit still plays in the growing of the church. It's important for us to understand that Jesus told them in the time of, of their greatest despair, they didn't know it was the time of their greatest despair back in the upper room. They didn't quite understand everything that was going on, but they were going to understand very quickly. And Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and calls him the comforter, the helper, the one who is going to be with them forever. Why is that important? In that context that Jesus tells them, this helper will be with you forever, who wasn't going to be with them forever, as far as their understanding. Jesus. Jesus was about to leave. And not just leave on a cross, and they were going to experience the despair of watching him die. But he was going to leave into the clouds of the heaven, like we just talked about from Luke and the book of Acts. But they weren't going to be left alone. This Holy Spirit was going to come and testify about Jesus. And I think that's done in multiple ways as we'll talk about as we go through the book. In one way, it was the power that he gave to the early Christian to give them credibility, to give them the ability to display that they spoke from God. But also in the sense of he gave them answers. He gave them truth. He was their guide in all truth. Had Jesus taught them everything they needed to know? No. According to this, there were things that they weren't yet able to hear yet. 
but the Holy Spirit would give them those inf that information. He would convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I want you to look back with me there in John 16. It's interesting the explanation that Jesus gives about each one of those. About sin, because they do not believe in me. Think about that for a minute. That's not the explanation we would expect. I'm going to convict the world about sin because they are immoral people. They are engrossed in sin. They, they need to understand what is sin and what isn't sin, what is righteousness and what is unrighteousness, what is moral and what is immoral. So we tend to think about sin in terms of knowledge, understanding, and activity. Jesus talks about sins in terms of conviction, in terms of they don't know him. When you know Jesus, you know not to sin. It was a relational understanding. When it comes to righteousness, it says about righteousness because I am going to the Father. Why is that important? Think about it. Who else on earth would we ever truly say was righteous? We mess up. The apostles messed up. They did not all of a sudden get the Holy Spirit and suddenly they no longer sinned. They were completely righteous. They were completely good. Did they still make mistakes? Did they still sin? Did they still struggle sometimes with temptation? Absolutely. Did Jesus? No. Jesus was our example of true righteousness. He was going to go, so there needed to be someone to still convict the world about righteousness. That's the Holy Spirit. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You know, it's hard to believe that the ruler of this world has been judged or condemned or defeated when we look at our world and we see the amount of sin and unrighteousness in it. When we see the amount of people who have disregarded God and disregarded God's way, we need help convincing the world that the ruler of this world has already been condemned. And the Holy Spirit was going to do that. It's interesting to me when you really look at the timeline of everything. Turn with me over a few chapters to John 20. John 20. Starting in John 20, verse 21, it says, Jesus said to them again, this is Jesus appearing to them in the upper room, Peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I don't know about you, but I wish we had a lot more explanation about this particular passage of Scripture. I look at this passage of Scripture and go, 
wait, I got to read that again. Like that, that's my response of maybe if I read it again, I'll understand it better. I, I've read it many times. I still don't understand it entirely. I'm going to tell you what my assumption is and understand this is an assumption. Did they at this moment receive the powers distributed by the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is no. And the reason we know the answer is no is because over in Acts chapter 1, We haven't read these verses yet, but right there it says in verse 4 and 5, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, and you will baptize with the Holy Spirit, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. So the power that came from the Holy Spirit is not something they yet have in John 20. This receiving of the Holy Spirit was something different than what they receive over in Acts chapter 2. Well, as far as I can tell in Scripture, there are two receivings of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. One is the receiving of power. When the apostle would lay hands on you and you would receive the ability to do certain power or when you receive some miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit through baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we know happened to the apostles and happened to Cornelius' family, which we'll talk about when we get to those chapters. The only other receiving of the Holy Spirit we read of in the book of Acts is like Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was the marking that you are saved, the marking that you belong to God, the marking that you now are connected to Jesus Christ. And I personally assume, I think, that that's what's going on here in in John 20. That Jesus is giving them the Holy Spirit in the same sense in which we receive the Holy Spirit upon obedience and baptism. Now, I don't know that for sure. Maybe there's something else going on here. Uh, But that seems to me to be what's going on here. But we do know that whatever this is, it's not what we're about to see happen in Acts chapter 2 or what Jesus promises here in Acts chapter 1. There is still a coming of the Holy Spirit, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit that still was in the future, that they were still to wait on, and it was going to give them power. And then we come to what I think is one of the both funny and saddest moments in all of the book of Acts. But I think it is telling for us as as we try to explore through the book of Acts. You have a disciple who is fixated on what is very clearly not God's plan. Look with me in verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? I don't know about you, but I was brought up with an understanding that the apostles were idiots all the way through the gospel. But when you get to Acts chapter 1, all of a sudden they become smart. 
They have it figured out. They know what's going on. They have a clear understanding of exactly what God's plan is. And even I was impressed with the idea that they had a complete understanding of what the plan of God is. I don't think that's true. I think the apostles are still fixated on a physical kingdom. And put yourself in their shoes. They have been brought up believing that the Messiah would come and defeat the enemy and establish God's kingdom on earth again the way they had it back during the time of David and maybe even Solomon. That when God promised a king on the throne of David, that meant a king on a throne in the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And they're still fixated on that. We know they asked about it before Jesus' death. That's what led to the long conversation in Matthew 24 and 25. The disciples came and said, hey, what are going to be the signs of your kingdom finally being established? And Jesus tried to teach them there that that their kingdom's not going to be established, that the kingdom, that Jerusalem is actually going to be destroyed. And so it's not a physical kingdom, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand. Acts chapter 1 verse 6 shows that they ask again after the resurrection and before Jesus' ascension. Because, again, if, put yourself in their shoes. Their Messiah, who they thought was defeated by Rome, has actually overcome death. He has proven himself undefeatable. Nobody can stop Jesus. Not even death can stop this miracle worker. He is the Messiah. If ever we were going to believe that there was a king on the throne forever, wouldn't it be the man who defeated death Isn't that the man you think would sit on a throne forever? And I think that these disciples completely believe that, that this Jesus, he is going to sit on this throne. Is this the time? Is this when it's going to happen? It's not. I even wonder if that's not part of the reason that they go through the process of choosing another apostle. Look with me back in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, you've got this conversation about the kingdom. Jesus talked about it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They say, well, then who can be saved? In verse 26, with this, uh, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter responds, verse 27, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last 
first. Jesus tells them here, hey, you've got a job to do. Your job is to go be witnesses of my kingdom. He has taught them for three years. You are going to be the leaders in my kingdom. He has taught them, at least on this occasion and possibly on other occasions, that in the new kingdom, when the Son of Man is sitting on a glorious throne, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And we don't quite understand exactly what all that means. But I think we're in good company because I don't think the disciples understood exactly what all that means. So turn with me back to Acts chapter 1. Peter decides there needs to be another. It's interesting to me that the term for witness is martyrs, where we get the term martyr. Jesus says, your job is to be martyrs for me. And what they hear is, your job is to be heralds for me. The term can be used either way. It it can mean someone who is an emissary for a king, someone who goes before a king making pronouncement of the king's glory, someone who goes out before the king Uh, talking about the victory the king has experienced and has brought to the people, and that's their job. Their job is to go out there and be these emissaries, to be these, these announcers, to be these ones who have the message of the king. But the term also means one who gives everything for the king, including life. And I think the disciples hear Jesus' words the way they want to hear them. We are going to be the ones sitting on the 12 thrones. We're the ones, we're the, we're the emissaries. We're the ones who, who, who get to rule with Jesus. And that's not at all what Jesus means. Peter makes a case for choosing another apostle. And it is the, I hate to say, Weakest case you could ever possibly make for anything. I mean, turn with me to the two passages. I get this from what Peter says here, starting in verse 19 of Acts 1. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem, so that in their own language, that field is called Hakeldama, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, Let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. You probably have in your cross-references the Psalms that that's in reference to. Psalm 69, verse 25. Turn back there with me. Psalm 69, verse 25. Psalm 69, verse 25. Says exactly that. Make their fortifications desolate. May no one live in their tents. But what in the world does this psalm have to do with the situation that the apostles are going through? Nothing. I mean, it is about the most 
cherry-picked verse you could possibly find from the Old Testament to prove his point. Well, what about Psalm 109, verse 8? That's the other, uh, that's the other reference that, that Peter is making uh, or bringing their attention to. Psalm 109, verse 8. It's a psalm that my Bible entitles Prayer Against an Enemy, a psalm of David, and it says, verse 8, Let his days be few, let another take over his position. But it has nothing to do with the situation they're going through. Now, I I don't doubt at all that maybe Peter knew things that I I don't know. Uh, I guarantee you Peter knew a lot of things I don't know. I also know that at this point, Jesus has breathed on him and he has received the Holy Spirit. So maybe there's some sort of inspirational understanding that we don't have because we don't maybe have that same manifestation of the Holy Spirit, depending on what John 20 is talking about. But it's also possible here, before he has received the miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit, that Peter is making a case that really isn't a case that needed to be made. Because he is, in his understanding, re-establishing 12 people for the 12 thrones that are going to judge over the 12 tribes of Israel because he understands that there needs to be 12 men. We have no record in here, as far as I can tell, of them being commanded to choose a 12th. But he does it. Now, again, I'm not saying he did wrong. We're not told that either. But it is interesting to me that the requirement that they have is someone who's been with them from John's baptism all the way through the resurrection, and, and they cast lots, and the lots fell to, to Matthias, and uh, that, that, that becomes, he, he replaces Judas. He becomes the 12th apostle. And then Paul becomes the 13th apostle, and, and then we start getting mixed up down the road too. Uh, he occupies the whole. But not because that's what God commanded. He occupies the whole because that's what seemed right to Peter. He chose another witness. Now I will say I, I think it's great that they understood that they would need to be witnesses of the whole shebang. That this new chosen person needed to be somebody who could be an eyewitness testifier of everything that had happened all the way from the the baptism of John, uh, John's baptism that he was doing for people, and maybe that's in reference to Jesus's baptism from John, all the way to the resurrection. He's seen everything. Uh, But Again, it's interesting, you never really read about him after this point. Uh, He occupies a space. But what it does is it allows us to be set up for the building of a kingdom that is established by God in order to accomplish God's purposes. And that's really what this opening chapter does for us. It sets us up for this grand and glorious kingdom on which Jesus sits 
on the throne. But I am convinced that the grand and glorious kingdom that they think they are about to build is not the same grand and glorious kingdom that's going to get built. Because the kingdom that Jesus intends for them to build is a kingdom whose throne rests in heaven, not in Jerusalem. A kingdom that would bring them not to glory and honor and praise and, and some sort of a great you know, place among men, but it was going to bring them to death. That they thought they were going to be emissaries for this great kingdom that was going to be established in the city of Jerusalem. But instead, they're going to be martyrs for a kingdom that was going to be rejected by men and still is being rejected by the majority of men. Because people just don't understand. I think we are intended to see ourselves in Peter here. That as we read through the story, our expectation is that this kingdom is going to be one way, but in reality, by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, we find the kingdom is an entirely different way. And you remember how the, the quotes I read this morning from that Roman pagan antagonist toward the church that he made these comments like they think they have this grand thing, but in reality, from anything we can tell, they're all destitute and poor and grief-stricken, and their God has forsaken them. And what kind of God would you serve that would leave you in, in poverty and leave you destitute and leave you suffering? Well, either that God is unwilling to save his people or that God is unable to save his people. And why would you serve that God? Well, the truth is, if we're looking for some sort of grand and glorious physical kingdom, we do look like idiots. But if you're looking for something better, as is revealed through the book of Acts, you're going to find we have something amazing to look forward to. It's an incredible story, this book of Acts. And I hope you'll walk with me through it as we see the truth about the kingdom opened up to us and to the apostles. And we start to see what it is God has made possible because of the way he has set up a kingdom that is for all people and all nations and all tribes. It's a great thing. If you're not a child of God, you're not a part of that kingdom. It's simple as that. If you're not a child of God, if you've not put on Christ in baptism, you don't have the help of that Holy Spirit we talked about and that we'll talk about more through this series. If you're not a child of God, you're still struggling to exist in a kingdom that is temporary and, and honestly pointless. But when you become a child of God, you get to belong to a kingdom that is eternal and glorious. Well, I encourage you, if you're not a child of God, to become one tonight. You can do that by putting on Christ in baptism, by having your sins washed away, by belonging to Jesus. And so I encourage you to do that tonight. If we can help you in any way, please come forward and let us know. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. 
If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.